Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiago, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today I'm joined by my colleague Brenda Platt, who directs ILSR's Community Composting Initiative, and we're going to be talking about zero waste, living away from a coal-focused economy, and local economic development with Jacob Hanna, who is the conservation director at Coalfield Development, an organization that is rebuilding the Appalachian economy from the ground up. So welcome to the show, Jacob and Brenda. Hello. Thanks for having me. And I think to get us started, Jacob, could you just give us a very brief overview of what Coalfield Development is and what's the meaning behind the name? Sure. So Coalfield Development is a nonprofit organization here in West Virginia. We cover about five counties. And the, the name is sort of a clue to not only the region, but sort of the focus. This region has historically been very, not only dependent, but uh, productive for coal generation and coal consumption. So essentially it was a mono economy built around serving that one industry. So all the towns were built around the coal mines, all the roads and trains and infrastructure built to serve this economy. And so now that that industry has gone into decline, we have this massive power vacuum in its place. And so how do we address that in a way that is a just transition to new and diverse economies that doesn't leave people behind like what we're seeing right now with the opioid epidemic, massive rates of unemployment, lots of folks leaving the state, lots of health health issues as well. So how can we tackle those factors by offering folks some reskilling opportunities um, new economic employment opportunities, training, education, and also, of course, diversified portfolio of, of different opportunities for folks to choose from. We house the uh, the largest nonprofit, not nonprofit, well, we are a nonprofit, but we house the largest um, solar installer in the state right now. They're a B Corp, which is a really sort of a newer model to the region. We do large-scale rural and urban agriculture. Uh, we do a lot of recycling and upcycling, uh, building deconstruction and remodeling, and a whole plethora of other activities as well. And uh, of course, we want to try and figure out how to integrate that with actual mine land remediation as well. So again, we, we realized quickly that we can't just tackle one element of this issue with just, you know, reskilling someone and giving them a job. There's a whole litany of components that we want to try and help support. And that's where the training comes in, where the workforce development comes in. We even offer a lot of life skills as well, financial literacy, interpersonal communications, et cetera. So it's, it's really a, a holistic approach to figuring out how we can rebuild communities that help rebuild people that help rebuild new economic opportunities. So people, planet, and profit all mixed together. Awesome. We're going to talk a lot more about Coldfield Development and what the organization is doing. But Jacob, I want to ask you about your own personal arc. Now, you grew up in Appalachia, right? I did, did, yes. How did you get into this field? Well, so my dad was a coal miner and his dad worked in the coal mines as well. And it, I was in a born and raised in a, a coal town. They called the billion dollar coal field in, in Williamson, West Virginia. And so coal is very much a part of the culture and the economy. It's sort of what puts bread on the table for a lot of folks, including my family at one point in time. Um, but then the coal mine shut down 
And we had a lot of issues with water in our region, getting clean water and then forest fires happened as well. So it's sort of a one, two, three knockout punch for a lot of folks in our region. And so we had to leave the area like a lot of people did. And uh, it sort of feels like almost a sense of betrayal in a way, because it's like you're leaving with a bucket of water, hypothetically, and you know your neighbor's house is on fire and you can't really help put out their fire because you're trying to go help put out your own. And so I've always wanted to come back and try and figure out how I can help make life less painful and just more opportunistic and thriving and resilient in, in Appalachia. And so pursued a couple of different education opportunities. It was the first of my, uh, my family to go to college and got my degree in business because I thought, okay, if there's a lack of jobs, maybe I need to study business. But a lot of people have tried that in the region and a lot of businesses have, have sprung up and failed. And so I got an opportunity to study sustainability management as well. And so looking at how Business doesn't have to be just for profit with one bottom line, but can focus on people, planet, and profit all integrated in together. And that in and of itself helps businesses thrive and survive and also helps give back to the to the communities and the economy in more than just one way. So now I'm back here in, in my home region and um, we're doing a lot of fun and exciting things that I never thought would be possible in a place that usually is on the bottom list of every sort of indicator of quality of life. So we're really excited to be part of the part of the alternative narrative for for how Appalachia can look in the 21st century. Yeah, and you talked about the just transition. Is there more to say about the just transition for uh, Appalachia? Sure. So just transition is a term that's floating around a lot right now. And different regions have different ways of defining it, but ultimately it's an understanding that for us, our definition is the first fruits of a new economy should foremost benefit and prop up the people left behind by the last economy. So if there is a coal region that's phased out in coal, but those coal miners and those coal families have done their due diligence and provided the energy that was needed to build our skyscrapers and powers through the world wars, then we need to honor that legacy and help those folks have a stable transition into a new occupation before we start bringing in outside skilled labor or, or new jobs for other folks who are looking for those opportunities. So that's where a lot of the reskilling focuses on. So retraining those folks who may have been truck drivers for coal and now they're moving materials that can be upcycled and recycled or folks who are mechanics operators, um, they're, they're now operating some of our machinery for processing. So really trying to figure out what fits where with whom. And I think a lot of times there's a false narrative that you know for a just transition, Everything that was a brown economy has to be replaced by a green, you know, a, a green energy economy. And that's not always the case. There's never going to be one silver bullet that replaces all of what coal used to be. And so that's what we're trying to make sure that we, we iterate in the diversity, the diversity of our options right now, whether it's agriculture, woodworking, entrepreneurship, solar, manufacturing. We want to have a large toolbox of opportunities for folks in the region. And so that just transition for us looks very different from let's say the European model, where it's a very top-down approach where the government owns the coal mines, they phase it out, and then it phases out the infrastructure, phases out everything else. And then by the time it gets to the people at the bottom, it's been five, 10 years of processing and they've sort of been moved out. 
they've sort of been displaced by all the change that's already happened. And so we flip that model. We start with the people at the bottom first that help bring about the change in, in, the, in the models and the drivers that result to that ultimate transition for the region. And so that really creates a, a holistic, healthy community of practice and also brings in a lot of buy-in from the local workforce as well to where they don't feel displaced too. So that that is, in our definition, a, a just transition. Yeah, and you know, what you're doing along those lines is you're incubating these social enterprises, right? And you're doing this hiring unemployed people, doing the on-the-job workforce development training. Tell us about that workforce development and the how you're incubating those social enterprises from the bottom up. Sure thing. Right now, our, our workforce development model looks like three different components. So let's say this is a one work week that you're looking at for a typical trainee within our organization. 33 hours of that week, they are on the job, learning a trade and getting paid for that trade at a living wage. So whether they're coming in from an opioid recovery program or incarceration or just facing different barriers to employment, we want to take in the folks who are having a hard time getting a leg up in Appalachia. And so 33 hours a week, you're doing that. You're learning your trade and getting paid to learn it. And that could be you know, doing woodworking. That could be doing remodeling, solar installation, agriculture, whatever it may be. That's what your that's what your model looks like there. So three three hours doing that, six hours a week they are in the classroom pursuing a higher education degree with our financial assistance, uh, and so that could be anything of their choosing for about two and a half years they were in their associate's degree, and then three hours a week they are learning life skills, uh, financial literacy, communication, how to open a bank account, uh, how to apply for food stamp assistance, whatever it may be. We want to try and help solve those little little challenges that just pop up every day in life that could prohibit someone from being able to choose, do I stay home and take care of my sick kid or do I go to work and try and get a paycheck to support them down the road? That's a tough decision no parent should have to make. So we want to try and help arm our folks with those resources and, and skill sets to be able to tackle these challenges. So that's what that's what that full workforce model looks like. And then, of course, we we work very closely with communities and organizations, businesses and nonprofits to host these region wide communications on what does your community need? What is it lacking and how can we help provide a social enterprise to satisfy those needs? And so it would look different anywhere that you go. If you go down into Mingo County, West Virginia, the growing economy there is tourism. And so maybe we can help provide some of the gaps there between folks coming in who want a place to stay and folks who want to expand that economy. So maybe we can be the middleman that helps build some infrastructure to capture those dollars coming in and, and reskill some folks in, in, uh, in tourism. Or maybe it looks like agriculture on a former strip mine. Uh, there's a lot that we do there with uh, repurposing former moonscape strip mines um, into orchards and, and rotational grazing opportunities that help refertilize that soil and then uh, have a, a, a crop growing on top of it or a livestock growing on top of it that goes into the local market. So really, it's just a matter of listening to the community on what they want, what they need, and then trying to figure out how we fit into that picture as well. So we're sort of the, the, necessary, the necessary cartilage between the funding sources and the folks who really need those, those levers on the ground to be activated. Yeah, there was one of the stories I think uh, I heard you share about revitalizing a dilapidated property. I don't know if it's in the same area you were just talking about, but into a uh, coffee house with the local economic development authority in there and then apartments on top. That just seems like yep. a perfect, perfect example of what you're talking about to meet some community's need. 
Absolutely. We try and go for a blend, um, you know, because again, it goes back to that one bullet isn't going to be the perfect shot to get us through. It's going to be a mix. And so usually if we do take on a dilapidated property, like down in Mate One or Wayne that you're talking about right now, it would usually be commercial on the bottom floor where there's a lot of foot traffic. It would be residential above and then maybe some sort of mix in the back of the building. So the commercial for that example is coffee shop on the bottom apartments on the top and then uh, economic development office in the back as well. And so that looks similar as a model that could be replicated in these smaller coal communities that need just sort of a, a simple incubation satellite station, maybe not the full nine yards of, you know, a multi-million dollar investment yet because it's maybe a smaller community of three or four or 500 people, but maybe just something small enough to start off first to, to get some ideas started and growing. And so obviously all those things connect back to our main hubs here in Huntington, West Virginia, where we have have a large factory that was scheduled to be demolished and now it houses a lot of businesses and new ideas and incubation centers and black box theaters. It has the largest nonprofit solar installation on top of the roof as well. So that's a great a sort of living learning lab of, of how ideas can thrive in that area where folks can get inspiration and learn about the funding that's available. I love the idea that Coalfield's working on that you're not replacing the monopoly coal economy with the monopoly, other economy, it's this distributed democratizing, you know, the business sector. And uh, you've what, like incubated 40 new businesses? Can you talk about some of those that distributed diverse economy now you're helping to build and demonstrate the potential for? Yeah, I mean, it, it looks very similar to what I was describing before, where maybe it's not we build a new business in every community, but maybe someone in that community already has an idea. And it's, it's struggling to thrive because it's only able to reach a certain population. And maybe we can reach for some of those outside dollars from Apple, from outside of Appalachia, because a lot of times, you know, businesses within Appalachia, they're only able to access the dollars that are inside Appalachia. And that's, that's never going to lead to large growth. It's never going to lead to self-sustainability because folks in Appalachia may not have the buying power to support something like a local bakery or a local shop that's that works on woodworking. So how do we use our network of partnerships, our broadcasting mechanisms, our ways to reach outside into other regions to show the storytelling of folks who are reskilled and repurposing opportunities and, and materials to build new valuable scarce items. Like some of the woodworking that we're doing is, is wood that is inside of buildings that is no longer in in, in in the market anymore, like wormy chestnut. And so that's very valuable when it would normally be in a landfill and says being upcycled into nice distressed looking wood that you know a lot of hipster bars in New York love to love to buy and integrate into their into their buildings. And so how do we connect them to those buying power dollars outside of the region? And so those are the businesses that we want to support. And then oftentimes we we develop our own businesses, we incubate new ones. One of them is a partnership to focus on how do we repurpose an abandoned strip mine and also satisfy the need of the lack of uh, fresh uh, fish in the region. And so we're a landlocked state. A lot of our rivers are really heavily polluted and we're trying to clean this up. But in the meantime, can we have a place to get fresh fish? And so we remediated an abandoned strip mine. This is called the, the Blue Acre Aquaponics Facility. And we built an actual facility on top of it that, that incubates actual fish within the water. And those fish, when they defecate it, it feeds the lettuce growing on top of the water and that lettuce filters out the water as well at the same time. So it's a symbiotic relationship there. And so 
Now all the, the stores and the restaurants here are able to have access to very fresh, close local food systems and folks that are able to have jobs that are, aren't going to go anywhere anytime soon as well. And that's a former abandoned mine land that was normally a liability to the community and now is an, an asset again. So those are just some examples of, of how those stories work out. Yeah. You know, one of the other things I, I love is that for some of the businesses you've incubated, you know, this idea of like one person's waste is another person's treasure. And one of the businesses is t-shirt making and mm -hmm. some of the textile waste is going to a mushroom grower. Did I get that right? Yeah. So yes. I, the, the idea is for, I mean, it started with what I was mentioning before. There's a lot of dilapidation in Appalachia. You have a lot of buildings that are falling down. And so what we do is upcycle those buildings. If it's too far gone, we upcycle the wood. And so we've been trying to apply that same line of thinking is if we can upcycle wood, what else can we upcycle? What else can we see that would normally be categorized as trash or waste or, or useless and find the value in it in a way maybe we don't have a way to extract it, but maybe another partner's looking for it or maybe another organization has an idea for it. And so there are mushroom farmers out in Wayne County that are using shredded textiles as the necessary fibers to, for mushroom farming. These textiles couldn't be sold anywhere because they're too far degraded, and so they can use those fibers. Um, there's another opportunity that we use as well uh, that shreds plastic bottles and plastics and puts them through a four-step process to where they become very smooth uh, textiles, like the one I'm wearing right now, t-shirt textiles. So that's what's within our building right now in Huntington. Similarly, there's organizations with our partnerships in Ohio and Kentucky that are looking for plastics that they melt down and put into 3D printers. And they're making pottery plants out of plastics and making cup holders and placers, uh, even the, the bands that go across for, for face masks for COVID. And so it's really just, it's amazing just the ingenuity that's in the region um, that is hungry for the opportunity to unleash their ideas and their creativity towards making entirely new business models that didn't exist before in, in the area. And these business models are tackling things that would normally be floating down the Ohio River, floating down, you know, some back, back water area where, you know, there isn't recycling, there isn't processing. Like where I grew up at, you know, if, if, if something was trash, you had to take it in your backyard and burn it. And now, fortunately, we're, we're able to divert that and empower those folks that you don't have to pay to come drop off these materials. You don't have to, you know, sign up for a program where you're a member. Just come and bring it here. We'll take it. We'll drop it off and we'll take your electronics. We'll take your wooden pallets, uh, your rubber tires, your plastics, whatever it may be, your textiles. And we will contact our members who are in this region and see, oh, Organization X is looking for this and Organization Y has already got a truck en route to here. So let's tie these things together. Let's make it all work for each other to where it costs a lot less for you to run your business. It costs a lot less for you to recycle and it costs a lot less for you to deliver something because there's already logistic systems in place. So how can we democratize the idea of recycling and upcycling in a region that has been completely divested in and, and forgotten about and for, for just traditional recycling. There is no traditional recycling systems in our region. So how can we step up to the plate and not only attack that issue environmentally, but economically and socially as well to where, you know, the Ohio River is the drinking water source for all of Huntington, West Virginia. That's 55,000 people. So how can we keep it clean and, and also create value in a region that has limited economic opportunities. And so it really fits together all those pieces in a very harmonious way. Yeah, that is local self-reliance in action. We'll be right back after a really short break. 
Thanks for listening to our show. If you're enjoying my conversation with Brenda and Jacob, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support us. Your donation makes this podcast and all the work we do here at ILSR possible. Visit ilsr.org donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And if you can't donate right now, another way you can help us out is by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to our show. It really does make a difference. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. You know, over the years, I've done a number of studies on the jobs by burning waste, landfilling waste, and then comparing that to recycling and reuse. So, you know, for every 10,000 tons flowing into landfills, one job. That same 10,000 tons going into a recycling sorting facility, just sorting the materials is 10 times more jobs. Mm. But when it's repair and reuse, it's like 200 times the number of jobs. So, you know, we're talking about highly skilled labor. And so everything that you're really doing. And because I happen to work on and focus on composting, I have to ask you about composting. And you talked about uh, reclaiming mining, you know, land. And I understand that Marshall University, which is in West Virginia, is probably the first commercial scale composting operation starting in the state and Coldfield might have had yep. some role in that. And That's that the compost, I think the plan is to use it to reclaim some of this land that needs to be remediated. Can you just talk about what's going on with the composting? And sure. before you start, I think there's a connection <laughs> to the wood waste that some of the oh, yeah. Yeah. wood waste is actually being composted with the food scraps from the university. Yeah, so even within our efforts to transform waste products like wood into value-added products like furniture, there's still byproducts of waste, so sawdust. Sawdust is still a byproduct of that waste rescue process. And so how do we even look at that second level element of, of that rescue initiative and, and find the value in even sawdust? And so through what we're calling the reuse corridor, this collection of, of organizations that are all communicating with each other, one of our partners is uh, Marshall University. Amy White is the sustainability director there. She's been fantastic to work with. And uh, she was looking at, okay, we produce a massive amount of food waste on our campus and we pay a third party contractor to take all that food waste to a landfill and it costs an incredible amount of money. And it just ends up in the net negative for the region cause it's just food waste and food waste is a massive contributor to pollution to the water systems and just the quality of the environment there. So how can we divert that in a way that limits the cost for us as a university, but also creates a benefit or a product for the region. And so our sawdust plus their food waste creates a really nice blend of, of, a, of a compost that is high grade quality and uh, very valuable to the region. And before we were ever even able to pursue that, we realized that there is state laws against large selling large scale compost in, in the state of West Virginia. And so that's the beauty of these local level grassroots initiatives is that we're able to test out these ideas that influence these larger systems, whether they be laws or infrastructure or bills or funding. And so this project was able to convince those legislatures to rewrite that bill to where now it is legal to integrate those large scale composting facilities within the West Virginia system here. And so now this is the largest, this is the first commercial scale composting facility. And that compost is going to uh, be bagged and sold to local consumers in the region. But as you mentioned before as well, we want to start integrating that 
into some of these moonscape properties of abandoned strip mines and bring back a topsoil layer that is actually fertile again for these uh, strip mines to where they can actually start to grow crops again, uh, grow local flora again, and actually have something that can contribute back to the community as well. And we want to do it in a way that's responsible too, because if you're careful, it can just have runoff and create algae blooms in the in the local watershed. So we're trying to be very patient and do our homework on this and, and make it in a way that uh, isn't just rushing through something because it's exciting, but do it in a way that has all of our homework done behind it. So that's a really exciting opportunity for us to be able to make all those things work together. And we're working through the AMLR program and a couple other programs to try and replicate replicate that model on a larger scale. And the beauty of that is we've ever since that installation at Marshall, we've probably got 15 or 16 other higher ed institutions reaching out to us about, hey, how did this start? How do, how do I make this happen at my university, at my college? Organizations way outside of West Virginia, all over the region, I'm just curious about how this sort of sprung up out of just a couple people working together to make to make waste reduced and to increase economic opportunities and improve the environment. And also the folks who are going to be working in this uh, composted facility are going to be reskilled folks who are, again, facing barriers to employment. So you can't really argue with that as, as a model. You know, it's something that uh, anyone can get behind, no matter what their political leanings or, or you know, their, their commercial backgrounds. It, it makes sense for everyone. I was going to say, I, I, I definitely want to talk more about the reuse corridor in a minute, but I, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit more about partnerships. What different kinds of partners do you have um, on different projects? How do those connections get established? Um, and, and, you know, what what does that unlock for communities? Yeah, partnerships are the, the key to all of this, honestly. Our organization, Coalfield Development, we're, we're robust and we're able to tackle a lot of issues, but they're just components of what is needed in the region that we simply do not have the, the, the facilities or infrastructure to, to tackle. And so something like the reused corridor or something like the, the initiatives that you see now today are only because we've been able to have those communications and relationships with other, first it starts off you know, pretty simple, Nonprofit A is talking to nonprofit B. It's very homogenous at first, where you know you understand you have similar viewpoints, similar missions to improve the region as a nonprofit. And then those operations start to benefit local businesses. And so local businesses start looking at, oh, okay, you are you're hosting free collection events for, for cardboard drop-off. I'm a business for-profit that brings in a lot of cardboard because I ship in a lot of materials for my operations and I pay way too much money to get this dumpster bin dropped off at my business to capture this material and then just goes to a landfill. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to pay the cost for that and I don't want to contribute to landfill. So how can I work with you, nonprofit A and B, to where I can just drop off my cardboard at your organization and benefit your operations with cardboard and then benefit my operations from the reduction in the cost for recycling. And so that starts to build and build and build to where you've got this network of organizations that understand, okay, this isn't just a feel-good kind of value system. This is something that makes sense for my bottom line. This is something that makes sense for for the workforce, I'm needing I'm needing more employees, and I'm having trouble finding employees that are ready to enter the workforce. So this program sounds really exciting because it's reskilling people and it's getting them ready for the workforce. I want to work with you guys, and so that expands broader and broader to these economic development authorities and these local governments and these city councils. 
And then that expands even more to these larger institutions like universities and schools that have the, the controlled audiences and controlled elements to where they can participate en masse as well. And so it really builds and builds organically. Uh, at least that, that's what we've seen here in our operations. And, and those, par those partnerships are, are crucial too, because you can show this has regional scale and then that regional scale can help work together like what we've done here recently and help joint apply for large funding initiatives. We were actually able just now to leverage a $2 million Appalachian Regional Commission grant for the reuse corridor because we have been able to show that interstate regional collaboration for this operation to, to really grow and thrive. So partnerships are absolutely crucial and key, but it can start very simply in a way that you you would least expect it to to take off don't underestimate the person to person and business to business conversations that eventually manifest in something like this now congratulations on that two million dollar grant thank you um, and you've also got funding from the federal government from the u.s department of, of ag is that right yeah so they there's a lot of innovative funding resources out there uh, i think that's where you know, the partnerships are great, but it's it's really valuable to have a nonprofit to pursue those grant opportunities. So USDA has rural focused recycling grant opportunities and, and composting grant opportunities that we were able to leverage and, and pursue. As I mentioned before, the Appalachian Regional Commission, that's a federal branch of the government that they provide a lot of funding for rural communities as well. But then also there's just completely random funding opportunities like the world famous rock climber Alex Honnold. He heard about what we're doing with trying to help with a just transition and wanted to provide funding to bring in solar in Appalachia that helps folks get reskilled and, and learning about solar. And so that helped fund the, the largest nonprofit solar installation in the state that we have right now. And so there's there's a myriad of, of funding opportunities. It just takes really a dedicated group of people to sit down and identify what are we well positioned to catalyze and capture. How much, how much money would you like? What is needed? Like if you had a magic wand. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, here's here's one thing I like to point to, actually, because I think a lot of folks, there is a false dichotomy between seeing that, OK, Appalachia doesn't have a lot of investment, so therefore they need a lot of investment. But I always like to point people back to the 1960s when the war on poverty was declared in Appalachia. The war on poverty was declared in, in the poorest counties in America, and those counties are still the poorest counties today. And so that tells you that not only just investment fixes things, that, that that's it's not enough. Very much so, at least from a top-down approach, um, it's not connected to the people at the grassroots level. And so we would love funding all day long for our operations, but I think it takes it takes buy-in, it takes education and training and vision for folks to have an identity of, okay, this is what we want as a community. And every community is gonna look different. And that, that, in my opinion, is much more valuable than, you know, than a blank check because that's, that's sustainable, that's cyclical, and it's not going to phase out after two years when the grant runs out or funding runs out. So I think it takes a, a really good blend between that, that funding and, and the, the people on the ground level. You know, Coalfield, we've been able to leverage just in the, in the past 10 years about almost $40 million that wouldn't have been attracted to the region uh, before and we've been able to bring that in. And then that's not including our partners in Ohio and Kentucky. And so we're able to bring in those dollars, but those dollars are able to stay and generate more dollars because of the work we put in with the models and the partnerships and the operations. So I think if that, if that trajectory continues, 
we'll see a lot of resiliency in the area. Yeah, I think the point is there's tremendous untapped potential to grow this model. And totally. so if you're, if you're listening and you have money or connections, this is a good <laughs> group to support, needs new investment, could be doing so much more than the 40 new businesses already created, right? Um, Absolutely. One of the things I, I love about what you're doing is you're not just focusing on the bad bad or the negative of coal, you know, which can be, as we know, hyper politicized, right? But you're really focusing on the good that most folks can rally behind, like who's not for healthy soils or workforce training and new businesses Mm -hmm. and keeping things local and revitalizing dilapidated properties, et cetera. But how with the hyper-politicized nature of politics now, and particularly with the, with the unique power that Senator Manchin has in your state, how do you, how do you navigate that? How do you, you know, how, how are you navigating that? It's, it's been, it's tricky. You know, politics has had a very messy history in Appalachia and West Virginia in particular. You know, historically, we were a, a blue state for a long time because this is where the unionizing, the unionization of labor began because of the poor treatment of coal miners from the coal companies. They were able to fight for their, their better rights because you know, a mule was more valued than a, than a man at that time in the coal mines. And so through a lot of conflict and conversations and, and years of fighting for better opportunities, that developed this sense of uh, collectivism to where folks were able to, you know, independent individuals were able to fight for their, their well-being. And that created, I think, a predominantly uh, blue political climate for a long time. And then we started to see the, the downturn of the coal economy. And, and so that was, you know, in part from the mechanization of labor, a diversified energy portfolio was starting to arise in, in the region. Uh, but then also, you know, there's tighter legislation on the emissions of coal and and trying to phase out coal and so i think that started to pivot the 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 politics in the region to where folks are trying to tightly hold on to coal because there's nothing replacing it there's nothing taking the place of those jobs that are being lost and so i think that started to pivot the the economy the the economics and the politics in the region and now you know that that promise of holding on to coal from sort of some of the 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 red state narratives is is starting to fade away as well because folks are seeing, you know, coal is not coming back. Whether it be whatever reason that you want to state, it's just not coming back. So how do we sort of put aside sort of the abandonment of one party and the and you know the the false pretenses of another and just sort of look at our own selves and try and figure out, okay, we we're not going to be rescued. <laughs> In fact, we've already been forgotten about. So how do we pull ourselves up out of this mess and make something that means means something to us at, at the grassroots level? And that's that's how Coalfield started. It's just one person that was born here in the Huntington area of West Virginia and decided they were tired of seeing the things happen here. And, and that grew to more and more and more local people. So it's Appalachians trying to help Appalachians out. And so Obviously, we're not separated from politics. You know, a lot of our funding comes from governments. So how do we navigate that? How do we figure out we don't want to bend with every wind that blows in the area because that's how extraction happens. And so we're well positioned to be able to be a great common denominator for any political party because everyone can agree that jobs is a good thing, whether that jobs comes from solar or it comes from economic remodeling of buildings 
You know, no one really cares about how it's done. They just want jobs for the area that doesn't have jobs. And so that's been a great unifier for us, for, for the politics in the area. I think what we're trying to do is prove that these newer markets are sustainable and are well suited for Appalachia. And that's what we've been trying to approve and have succeeded in with our solar installation. Before our organization really came into the picture, there was no solar market in West Virginia. And the solar that we're working with started in the back of an old empty ice cream truck (laughs) that that was just a partner with a vision. And they said, hey, we like what you do. You like what we do. Let's work together and build the solar economy. And now it's the largest solar installer in the state with uh, almost thousands of installations, residential, commercial, and otherwise in the region with a large unionized electrician workforce for that uh, solar installation. So it checks up all the boxes and shows that it's a model that can be replicable in Appalachia. So we're not necessarily lobbying for certain infrastructure or legislation to pass. We're trying to show that if, if if the policy deciders and leaders can see that what we're doing works, then that's the best way we can prove for someone to invest in infrastructure or invest in in new green jobs in the area. Because we're showing that on a small scale, this is fantastic and replicable and and is needed in all these other counties aside from ours. So that's that's how we fit really within the political scope is just proving these concepts are suited for Appalachia and are suited for people who have been sort of left behind that that it can be done and, and should be done. So that's, that's, the, that's the best way that I can put that probably how we interface with politics. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and I think, you know, that the history of the reuse corridor, which is now just taking that example is a regional effort, but it started as a, a local network, right? And prove the concept and then it grows and spreads and gets replicated elsewhere. And you're like, you know, you're doing all these businesses and enterprises and it's like you said, people are contacting you from all these other cities and communities. Let's do this here. So it's, it seems to be working really well. And I, we really look forward to following this trajectory and growth of impact in terms of investment dollars, jobs, new businesses, and all of that good stuff. Do you have replication tips for other either communities in Appalachia or elsewhere about kind of this model of bottom-up local economic development? I Yeah, I do. And I want to tie it in with some of the point you just made too as well. Even, even the reuse corridor with recycling and upcycling, even that was politicized when we started it. Uh, you know, I think there's such a, just a hyper tension around certain topics to recycle is normally to be associated with something more environmental or something more, you know, liberal, quote unquote. And so what we're trying to do and what we've done since the beginning of this is not tie this to any sort of party or, or, or policy, but tie it back to our Appalachian roots. Recycling has been something that's happened way back when because folks didn't have the funds or the opportunities to go out and buy something new when something broke down. They either fixed it or upcycled it into something new. If something broke, they would try and repair it or or build something new out of it or trade it for something else that they could then use in its place. That that innovation and ingenuity and that Appalachian stick-to-itiveness is what we're trying to celebrate and tie this back into. This isn't 
political, it's practical. And this is what our, our grandparents' generations knew and, and were very, very skilled at. And so how do we reintegrate those values and those skill sets into something like reuse or upcycling or even solar to where, you know, these haulers or these communities back in, in more cut off areas of Appalachia can have resiliency through solar if, you know, trees are falling down left to right and mudslides are happening and cutting off the electricity, they're still able to stay energized and, and resilient because they've invested in this energy or the, because they've invested in this infrastructure. So I think first of all is find what the narrative is for your region and lead with that because that's the values that everyone's going to agree on. If you can agree that you know coal was really great for our area and it built everything that we know and, and appreciate, so let's try and integrate that into the platform for launching the new things that we want to see come to fruition. I mean, our name, Coalfield Development, our solar installer, Solar Holler. Holler is the name for the tight valley between Appalachian Mountains. And the logo is a, a man with a pickaxe mining the sun. And so, you know, tied in with the values in a way that makes sense to the people here, in, in a way that resonates with, with our pride in the heritage of, of the region. And then grow from there, have those conversations. And I would say for replication, you know, find the lowest hanging fruits first, whether it's with the reuse corridor, whether it's something like coalfield development, you know, the things that can be tackled easily are the things that build momentum. You know, for us, there's a massive issue with, with recycling in the area, but we're not going to try and levy the state government to invest in a $5 million recycling facility. That's probably never going to happen. That's the last thing on anyone's priorities list. But if we start small with one community and host a collection event that we can move those materials to someone who is looking for those materials, that's a win. And if you get everyone on a win, that's a high. You know, that's something that is a story. The news articles want to pick it up. People want to come out and volunteer. And then that shows that it's a model of success and replication. And then those replications happen here and here and here. And before you know it, you get a $2 million grant from the federal government. And that grant is building out infrastructure for shredders and recyclers and storage facilities. And then that is going to obviously encourage and promote government involvement to where they're repairing roads to recycling facilities. They're investing in infrastructure. And that brings them to the table as well. So start small, start local. And don't underestimate those, you know, one-to-one -one connections and conversations and, and really tie it into the values of your community and the values of your region, because otherwise it's going to feel foreign and unnatural and no one wants to be beat over the head about something that they're not doing. I think that's what's happened for a long time in Appalachia. Folks have really pointed the magnifying glass that this region, you know, is contributing to pollution, it's contributing to joblessness, contributing to all these negative factors. And no one wants to just be told that they're not doing good enough. So how can we help provide the opportunities for those involved, for those people to be involved in doing good? Everyone wants to do good. Everyone wants to have a good quality of life. So let's provide them with those opportunities and that'll get any person on board. Jacob, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The inspirational storytelling and the narrative is so important and you're doing it. So I am so inspired by, by your work. And yeah, it was just, this conversation was so great to talk to you. I think we could just talk all day. I want to <laughs> wrap up with, um, we usually ask for those of you who listen to this podcast regularly of what your favorite book is, but I'm going rogue today. I want to ask you what your local favorite independent business is. Oh my goodness gracious. That's a tough one. Um, so many to choose from, right? I know, right? <laughs> it's, 
there's there's so many doing so many different things that I think are so important. Let me think for a second on that. You could give us a top, you know, two or three. And if you can't narrow it down to one, we'll allow that. I think I'm I'm really excited about an organization that I haven't been able to interface with with much. And then they're not really part of our operations, but I've been talking to them a little bit. They're out in Richwood, West Virginia, and they're a rural community that doesn't have access to broadband internet. And broadband is a big topic for the region because if you can get broadband, you can get access to outside markets and you can market what you do. People can work from home. Uh, COVID has really brought a lot of people from urban areas to Appalachia because they want to just get out and have a better quality of life. And they can work from home if they have broadband. And so this small town, they are their own broadband installer. They've developed a nonprofit to bring about broadband in the area. I think they're called Richwood Scientific. Um, and there, it's just a really beautiful model of, you know, like, like a lot of the projects that's talked about now, a community sees something that they're lacking and they're saying, I'm not waiting on, you know, some mythical savior to come in and, and you know, bring it, I'm going to bring it myself. Um, and so they've done that. They brought in broadband internet for their, for their community and their region. I think that's just something that's beautiful and it has, hasn't really happened yet in, in Appalachia where someone has just started it on their own. That's something that's very technical, very data oriented, high skill level oriented. And it just, I don't know, it just shoves it in the face of this, of the, of the stereotype that people in Appalachia are, you know, down in the mouth, ignorant, don't know what to do for themselves. And this is a very highly skilled, technical, complex system that is, you know, giving this community high broadband internet. So I think that's just such a, a beautiful, ingenuitive story that can be replicated as well. We agree. We have a community broadband initiative, we, and they're probably on our map, right, Jess? Nice. I bet they are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great example. Your, the work you're doing is incredible, Jacob. Um, it was so great to hear about it today. So many good stories that I feel like we barely even got to, to got to get into. As Brenda said, we could we could talk all day. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brenda, for leading this conversation. And thanks, everybody, for listening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Salfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funky Delude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Salfiaco, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.